If you have your Bibles or Scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me the Gospel of Luke in chapter 15. Luke in chapter 15. We're going to be in verses 11 through 32 in our time together this morning. It'll actually take us two weeks that we'll be in this parable, and I will explain that as we go. So Luke 15, 11 through 32 this morning and next week, and then for the first four weeks of July, we will be in our annual summer in the Psalms, and then we'll jump back into Luke in chapter 16. So Luke 15, 11 through 32 will be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along there as well. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's uh, read this together. Luke 15, starting in verse 11. The Holy Spirit said, And he said, Jesus, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger one of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now many days later, the young son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far away country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no, no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. He was angry, refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Amen. This is God's word. May God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. Last week, uh, we began our time together by considering two paintings. You might remember from 19th century artist Vincent Van Gogh. We talked about uh, how these paintings conveyed Van Gogh's feelings that the church was closed off to him and people like him. We compared this to how the Pharisees and the scribes made sinners and tax collectors feel in the first century, in first century Palestine, whereas Jesus welcomed right, and ate with sinners, which made the religious leaders angry and critical. Well, I want to keep this thing going by considering another piece of art. And the one I want us to ruminate on briefly is one painted by Renaissance artist Rembrandt. 
This one is considered by some to be the greatest painting ever painted. And it's called The Return of the Prodigal Son. And it was painted in 1669, shortly before Rembrandt's death. There are many things that are interesting about this painting. Uh, among them is that Rembrandt would typically be commissioned by others, right? That's how he made his living, to, to make these works of art. But this, he just did it for pleasure. He did, wasn't commissioned, he just did it because he wanted to do it. It would seem that Rembrandt had a special fascination with this parable uh, as he sketched it out more than once. This isn't the only time. You can find other sketchings that he did of this parable. But it, isn't it a magnificent painting? It might be hard to tell up there, but later, just Google the return of the prodigal son. You can see it in vivid clarity. We're drawn into this emotional scene where the wayward son has the appearance of an outcast, right? He's portrayed as being in rags. His shoes are falling apart. He has a bald head that's resting on his father's chest. He's on his knees to show his contrition and humility. And while we can't see his face, we can sense his feelings of relief after a self-manufactured difficult time in a faraway country. The father is contrasted to his young son with his own clothes being that of someone who has considerable means, clearly, right? The father's face is one of relief as he bends over to embrace his wayward child. The father and son are bathed in light. Can you see the light that's being bathed on them? Uh, to invite the viewer in, in some sense, to feel the emotion of the scene with the characters themselves. One art scholar said the painting goes beyond the work of all other Baroque artists in the evocation of religious mood and human sympathy. The observer is roused to a feeling of some extraordinary event. The whole represents a symbol of homecoming, of the darkness of human existence, illuminated by tenderness, of weary and sinful mankind, taking refuge in the shelter of God's mercy. Now, many people throughout time have painted what's called the parable of the prodigal son. Rembrandt's not the only one. Many, many people have undertaken to do this. But uh, as you look through all these different paintings of this parable, you'll notice that they all leave out something. Or should I say, they leave out someone that Rembrandt includes. There to the right of the viewer, barely lit, stands a figure watching the proceedings. Do you see him? Barely lit. Unlike the rest of the characters in the painting, he appears to not approve of what is happening. In fact, he looks judgmental and displeased. He is somewhat in the light, but the only light that shines on him comes from the Father, who he shares the same color garments with. His arms are folded. His expression is one of impassive disdain. He stands apart cold and rigid. Who is he? His elder brother. He's the elder brother in the parable. And although Rembrandt assuredly knew that the scene in Luke 15 did not fall out exactly like this, he does something that many people miss in their portrayals and discussions about Jesus' most famous parable. Rembrandt reminds us that the father in the parable, who is the true main character, has not one but two wayward sons. When we think of this parable, we think of the son who took his inheritance and went to a far-off land, right? That's, that's what we think of, to blow it, and we think he's the prodigal because, well, it's called the parable of the prodigal son, right? But as mentioned last week, this title for the parable is not a good one. And you can put the Luke, Luke graphic back up. It misses that the story has two halves. It misses that from the beginning of verse 11, we're told there are 
This man, who is the main carrier, has two sons that his father must address. And it misses that Jesus told this parable in the context of critiques of the Pharisees and the scribes because Jesus hangs out with the riffraff. Which means this parable continues to be a criticism and correction of the religious leaders. Let me suggest a better title instead of prodigal son. How about something like the compassionate father and his two lost sons? That is a more fitting title, the compassionate father and his two lost sons. Both sons are lost. Both are alienated from their father. Both are trying to save themselves through different means. And both love the father's stuff more than they love their father. Neither of them want the father. They just want what they think is coming to them. Says Tim Keller in his book, The Prodigal God. Do you realize what Jesus is teaching? Neither son loved the father for himself. They both were using the father for their own self-centered ends rather than loving, enjoying, and serving him for his own sake. The brilliance of this parable is it addresses and confronts the two ways in which people try to find meaning and purpose and value and ultimately salvation in this world. Both sons are prodigal because both sons are self-justifiers, but in two diametrically opposed ways. Kenneth Bailey said, Jesus is discussing two basic types of men. One is lawless without the law, and the other is lawless within the law. Both rebel, both break their father's hearts, both end up in a far country, one physically, the other spiritually. The same unexpected love is demonstrated in humiliation to each, for both this love is crucial if servants are to become sons. This parable shows us that salvation can only be obtained through the free, unmerited grace and forgiveness of a loving and pursuing father not through either religion or irreligion. Do you see? Salvation, says this parable, must be something that is given. It cannot be found through either pursuing pleasure with all of your might, nor through rigid rule-keeping or morality. It shows us that all people in their relation to trying to be saved are either trying to do so through being self-propelled or self-righteous. Either through living as if there are no rules and thus pursuing desire and the things of earth to find fulfillment, or through their being upright and good. And it shows us that both ways to pursue salvation are dead ends, because one can be far from God by work just as well as by wandering. That sin and self-righteousness are equally as deadly. That those who are overt sinners are in danger, yes, but so are the Pharisees and the very religious. So let's explore both of these dimensions, and we'll do that over the course of the next two weeks, as I mentioned. So today we'll consider the younger brother from verses 11 through 24, and next week we'll consider the older brother from 25 to 32. Okay, sound like a plan? And if we're reading this parable right, we should find shades of ourselves in both of the brothers. And realize once more that salvation is found only in a forgiving father who comes out of the house to meet us and offer us a seat at the banquet. So let's dive in. As Jesus continues to answer the Pharisees' objection from verse 1, that he receives sinners and eats with them, Jesus tells his third parable, which is the same basic message as the two we looked at last week of the lost coin and the lost sheep. Jesus says that a man had two sons. One day, the younger son uh, comes up, tells the father, give me the share of the property that I have coming to me. 
he, he wants his inheritance, right? Yeah, the, the inheritance that he would receive once his father dies, he just doesn't want to have to wait. He wants his share and he wants it now. So this is an inheritance, yes? This isn't anything the son earned. Are we on the same page? <laughs> Yet, he feels entitled to, to it whenever he feels that he should have it, which is when. Right now, what are the implications of doing what the son does in verse 12 in this context? See, we read it, we know the story, we've heard it a million times. Jesus' audience would have been shocked that the son did this. From verse 12, they would have been flabbergasted. The mere request would have been offensive to the audience in the first century. One commentator actually spent considerable time in the Middle East where this sort of familial arrangement is still practiced in many places. And so when he was there, he asked hundreds of men, if anyone has ever made this request, and they said, never. And then he asked, could anyone make this request? And they said, impossible. Then he asked, if anyone ever did make this request, what would happen? And they said, the father would beat him. Then they asked why, and he said, this request means he wants his father to die. In essence, the son is saying, I don't want to wait till you die, but I want to act as if you have. Klein Snodgrass says, the boy may not have literally wished his father dead, but his actions show that he did not really care for his father or desire a relationship with him. He wanted the father's money, not the father. Something really interesting, look again at your text in verse 12. You see that word that's used for property? See that word property? It's the Greek word, it's only used here for property. It's bios, and I say that because it should sound familiar to you, because it means life. That's what that word means, life. The son wants his portion of what his father's life would leave him, you see. But he doesn't want his father. The most important real thing to the younger son is that he believes himself owed good things and that he believes some sort of freedom and fulfillment will be found in his going his own way. This is why this young son is the picture of how we try to find salvation and wholeness in sin and pursuit of pleasure. He casts off his father as we cast off God. He makes his own rules through rejection of his father's authority through his saying, I want to live as if I have no father. That's what he's saying. Just as we cast off God's authorities and commands so that we could do our own thing, so that we could go our own way. I mean, what is sin if not taking God's good gifts and using them apart from him? What is sin if not using God's good gifts and using them in a way that he did not intend them to be used? But what is sin if not believing ourselves owed pleasure abstracted from any constraints? You know, Augustine is a name you're familiar with. He was someone who was acutely aware of all of this. Before his conversion to Christianity, Augustine pursued pleasure with all of his might, drink, food, sex, entertainment, you name it. And he pursued it all. And he was left empty. In his book, Confessions, which I think every Christian should read, he said, my sin consisted in this, that I sought pleasure, sublimity, and truth, not in God, but in his creatures, in myself, and in other created things. He was saying that he tried to find pleasure in created things rather than the creator. That is the essence of sin. Sin, at the most basic level, this is what it is. It's saying to God, I want your stuff 
but I don't want you. At the most basic level, that's what sin is. And so we pursue pleasure with all of our might, hoping that something, anything will finally bring us the wholeness that we all crave. Just look around the world, and you'll see that this is what everyone is doing, yes? And at the end of the day, it doesn't even matter what it is, does it? That you're pursuing, it doesn't matter if it's drugs or money or possessions or success or acclaim, alcohol, work, or sex. And it doesn't matter in one sense simply because no matter how much you have of any of those things, you must continue to what? Get more. Because none of those things can ever fill the God-shaped hole in all of our hearts. And all of them lead to destruction just the same. C.S. Lewis, Lewis said, if you have not chosen the kingdom of God, it will make, in the end, no difference what you've chosen instead. Those are hard words to take. Will it really make no difference whether it is woman or patriotism, cocaine or art, whiskey or a seat in the cabinet, money or science? Well, surely no difference that matters. We shall have missed the end for which we are formed and rejected the only thing that satisfies. But we think it will, and that's the madness of sin, isn't it? We think, like the younger son, that we can find wholeness through freedom to do as we please without constraints. Is that not what we think freedom is, right? Let me do what I want, and don't try to tell me what to do. That's what we think freedom is. Like, you know that wretched song from Frozen? <laughs> Where the main character, thank you, Jeff. Where the main character sings, no right, no wrong, <laughs> no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. And we have these little girls just singing this at the top of their lungs for years, right? That's where we think true freedom is. It No right, no wrong, no rules for, I'm free. That's freedom. But true freedom isn't actually found with no constraints. It's found in the right ones. Which is what God does because he is more committed. Do you realize that God is more committed to your joy than you are? As John Piper said, God is not a killjoy. He just opposes what kills joy. So when God gives us good gifts to enjoy with his common graces, and he says this is how to enjoy them properly without making them ultimate or them becoming your masters. He isn't trying to be harsh taskmaster, but a loving father. But sin says, I'll go my own way, pretend I don't have a God over me, and there I will find life. In this even those who say they believe in God could be like the younger son. You, you know you could be a functional atheist, even if you wouldn't claim to be one. You could say with your lips, I believe in God and live as if he doesn't exist. Even the demons believe and shudder. But the father does something unexpected, doesn't he? After hearing the most devastating request that a father could hear during this time, the father just, what? Does it? <laughs> it doesn't beat him and drive him out? Like most fathers would do if their son came and said, give me what's coming to me and let's act like you're dead because you are to me. You know, most dads in Jesus' day, in this original context, they say, you want what's coming to you? I'll give you what's coming to you. And they'd slap their face and drive him out. What does this father do? He just gives him his inheritance. Who would do that? Now, I'm not sure any of us would respond the way the Father does here, right? Being told, I wish you were dead, give me your stuff. 
would likely not cause us to go, okay, here you go. But the Father does here, and why? Well, we know the Father here represents God. Yes, I'm not breaking any news here. That's clear. And so what does God do when we give ourselves over to sin and are committed to a life separated from Him and disregarding Him? When we say, I want to do what I want to do apart from you, I want to pursue pleasure and the things of earth and try to find wholeness without your interference, what does God do? He gives us what we want. And that's the worst prospect of all. This is a silly example, so bear with me, but I think we've all seen a child approach some task wrong before. Yes? It's a common experience to people. And you go up to them and you go, here, let me just show you how to do it. And they lose their minds. And they say, I want to do it! You know how they get that voice? And you can say, but you're wrong. <laughs> you're doing it wrong? Let me just show you. And then you can do it correctly. And they're still insistent. They do it their way. They way the way they want to do it. So finally you should go, okay, that's fine. Get after it. And they do it, and then they realize, you can almost see the express on their face, they realize it isn't going the way that they really thought it would, but their stubbornness won't let them admit they're wrong, so they keep doing it wrong. And then finally, when it's too late, they come and say, yeah, so I ruined it. And you go, yeah. When humans say to God, I want your stuff, but I don't want you, so leave me alone and let me pursue life the way I want to, let me use the created things the way I want to use them, and I'll show you, I'll find the wholeness that I crave. God may very well say, okay, go ahead and give us what we want. And that's the worst thing that could happen to us. The world looks at Christianity, yes, and says, how stifling, slavish. They look at the church and say, I hate organized religion, which, by the way, what would they prefer? A disorganized religion? with all of its rules, and they think, I'm independent, and thus I'm not enslaved like you guys are. But they are slaves. They're just slaves to their passions and pleasures rather than to God. And if people want to cast off God and live self-propelled life, then God may very well give them what they want. What they don't realize is that God leaving us alone is the worst possible thing that could happen to us. Sam Alberry said it like this. He said, when we try to visualize what God's wrath looks like, Many of us imagine CGI from a disaster movie or think of lightning bolts falling from the sky. But Paul in Romans 1 gives us a very different picture. We see God's wrath in this. He gives us what we want. Similarly, Lewis said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. Now let's be clear. God takes no joy in letting us go on our own way any more than the father in this parable enjoyed being told in no uncertain terms that his son wished he was dead. Okay, God doesn't want that for us. But if we stubbornly demand it, he may very well grant our wish to our detriment, but it would be what we chose. And look, the text just says, see it? And he divided his property or life between them, and that was that, right? But understand, the father didn't just have cash money to hand to his son. He didn't say, let's go to the bank. His inheritance was property. This is a long process. He would have to divide it and sell it, then give the son his money. So there's like multiple painful, community-breaking events involved here. And we're not told what the father felt. We're not told what he thought in this process. 
The parable doesn't provide that kind of information because parables really aren't meant to give us all the information we need. But we can fill in the blanks, can't we? The pain of being told, I don't want you anymore, from the lips of a child is one that hardly needs to be described. Right? We can imagine what it would be like if we were in the father's shoes. Now, I can't, I can't, can you imagine anything worse than for my kids to grow up, look me in the eye and tell me, I wish you were dead? Like, I love you guys, okay? If one of you told me after church today, you wish me dead, it hurt a little, but eventually I would recover, right? It wouldn't be in the same universe if one of my kids told me that. I'd never recover. But this is what the younger son does. Listen, when we cast off God and pursue sin, this is what we're doing. We must not imagine that sin is simply breaking God's rules. It is that, but it's more than that. It's breaking God's heart. He wants what's best for us, just like any loving parent wants what's best for their child. The thing is, what the kid wants, am I breaking any other news to you parents? Sometimes, most times, what the kid thinks is best is almost never what they actually need. And so it is with God and us. We pursue our feelings and desires. We follow our idiot hearts. We never get what we think we will. And God tells us, don't do that. And we say, I'll do what I want. <laughs> so he might very well tell us, okay, go ahead. And where does that lead? Where does it lead for the younger son here? What's it say? He got what he wanted, didn't he? Did it turn out like he thought it'd turn out? He took his inheritance and he went to a distant land to get further away from his father. And there's something poetic about that, isn't there? James Edwards says the son's receding footsteps to a far country quickly convert his inner alienation to spatial distance from his father. This picture reminds us that sin never moves us closer to God, only further away. It is self-chosen alienation. So he goes, he blows all he had on reckless living, and we're not told what that means, but he blows it all. Then he ended up finding whatever work he could, which was in a pig pen, the worst possible place for a Jewish man. So desperate was he that he longed to eat the pods that the pigs were feasting on. This man has hit rock bottom, yes? To his surprise, sin has promised what it cannot pay. Rather than leading, this is what we think too, rather than leading to a vivacious life of wholeness and freedom, sin leads to misery and bondage. It leads only to pain and never to meaning and purpose that we think it will. Sin never satisfies. That's why we always want more. Again, it doesn't matter what the sin is. We know that we must continue to pursue whatever it is over and over and over again. No one in the history of the world has sinned and become whole. No one has pursued sin and got to the point where they said, that's it, I have what I need, I'm whole and happy now. Instead, sin makes us go back again and again. It makes us live under the delusion that if we just had a little more, we'd be satisfied. But our satisfaction never comes, does it? 
In fact, the opposite happens. Sin only leaves pain and destruction in its wake. It makes you think you're going to live this sweet life of freedom, but you end up in pig pens, wishing you ate as well as swine do. This is why Augustine said in his confession, without God, what am I but a guide to my own destruction? It's never enough. You know this, don't you? Name it. Whether it's alcohol or drugs or food or sex or greed, we will always need more. Just a little bit more. That'll do it. Oh, wait, I'm still empty. What about more? Still empty. What about different and more? Yeah, there's no doubt that there is. You can agree there's temporal satisfaction in the immediacy of sin's indulgence, yes? But what about ultimately? It only leads to destruction, never ultimate satisfaction. Alistair Begg said this, and this, of course, what th- this is, of course, what we long to say to men and women. This broad road really does lead to destruction. You don't have to be a heinous sinner. You could just be a nice sinner with your fingernails cut and clean, with your cuffs starched and white, with your initials monogrammed on the cuff, with your office tidy, and yet in the core of your being, this little upper middle class sinner finds no ultimate satisfaction. It's like drinking salt water. It cannot eventually satisfy, since ability to both to interest a person and to satisfy a person very quickly runs out. I think that analogy of sin is salt water is a good one, don't you? We all inherently, as humans, thirst for water, yes? Every person longs for something to satisfy their thirst. To a thirsty person, salt water looks good, doesn't it? Doesn't it look good? Clear blue water, it just looks like water. You're thirsty, you need satisfaction, you see water, you run towards it, you cup your hands together, you take a big swig for a second, it might satisfy, but you're still thirsty. So what do you do? Drink some more and some more and some more, and then eventually you'll just die. You can't drink salt water forever. There's no life nor satisfaction in drinking more and more of that which doesn't quench your thirst. Steve Hobbs said, if in our nagging state of thirst for paradise lost, what we do, what, what do we drink? Salt water. We consume things that look and feel and sound like they can quench our thirst. They promise unmatched pleasure. They promote limitless comfort, joy, strength, peace, and excitement. They vow to remove our fears, tears, worries, guilt, and shame. They pledge to fill the voids in our heart and soothe our aching soul. They promise paradise, but they can't deliver. We drink them, but our thirst remains unquenched. In fact, we are left thirstier. And we experience devastating hangovers, negative spiritual, emotional, physical, and relational consequences as a result. The beginning of life, you see, is found in coming to this realization. In other words, life cannot, life can only be found once we realize that sin only leads to death. Only when we realize that our attempts at self-justification through pursuit of sin, will never lead to life. Only then can we see where life is found. It took the younger son being hired by a Gentile while thinking about fist fighting a pig for pods for him to realize his senses. But he did, in fact, come to his senses, and that's what matters, right? The realization of his failures and inability to find life through sin is a humbling that all sinners need if they are to be saved. 
What I mean is, if we're to be saved at all, we need to see that there is salvation nowhere inside of us. Nor is salvation found in anything from this world. That's where you have to start. That's a hard thought, though, isn't it? For some, pride will never allow us to admit that. It's too painful to admit that all of our self-salvation projects were for nothing. But it's a realization we need in order to be saved. It took a dire situation for the younger son to come to his senses. And for some, unfortunately, that's what it will take. But we all must get to a place where we come to our senses and realize that our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. Where we see the emptiness of everything besides Jesus. The young man, finally, he looks at himself and he says, what am I doing? I'm on the edge of throwing hands with some pigs for some paws to satisfy my hunger, and yet even the servants in my father's house have no want for anything. This is what I will do. I will go to my father, I will tell him I have sinned against him and heaven, tell him that I no longer fit to be called a son, and see if he'll let me just be a hired hand in his house. Here's a partial picture of repentance. True repentance. Not only realizing you need salvation from outside of yourself and your pursuits, but realizing you have nothing to commend yourself to God. All you have is need. All you have is nothing. You say, like the old hymn, you remember the old hymn, could my zeal, no respite, no, could my tears forever flow, all for sin could not atone, thou must save, and thou alone. And nothing in my hands I bring, you know the song, simply to the cross I cling, Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Only with that posture can you be saved. The young man knows he has nothing to commend himself to his father. He knows he has nothing at all. And yet he arises to return. Further, he realizes that his sin is ultimately against heaven, yes? He sinned against his father, there's no doubt about that. But who was his sin ultimately against? Like all sin, the arrow is aimed where? At heaven. You think of David, King David and his sin. He used his power to prey on the wife of one of his soldiers and friends. He didn't want to get found out, so what did he do? He had Uriah killed. When he was confronted by the prophet Nathan through a parable... He confessed his sin in Psalm 51. You go read it. He says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, wait a minute. Against you alone I have sinned? What about the dead guy? Well, of course he sinned against him, but all sin is against who? Foremost. Against God. Of course, you can sin against people, but all sin is an affront to the heavenly throne. But he realizes... Also, that he isn't fit to be a son. We say, of course he isn't. The man cast off his sonship. He told his dad through his demanding his inheritance while his father was still alive that he didn't want to be his son anymore. But true repentance, listen, knows that it is owed nothing. At the start, the younger son thought he was owed his inheritance on demand. That he was owed a life better than what he was experiencing. That turned out to be a fantasy, didn't it? And we want what we think we're owed. We live in a culture, it's all about rights, rights, rights. Give me, give me what's coming to me. We're talking about what we're owed from God. But if we're talking about what we're owed from God, 
We don't want that. What God owes us is crushing wrath. That's what we've earned. What we need from God is what we aren't owed, which is his love, mercy, and grace. And now the young man knows he isn't owed anything. In fact, he doesn't even appear to believe he's owed being a servant in his father's house. He's going out on a limb thinking, maybe my father will let me be a hired servant in his house. Let's go see. He must know something, yes, about his father's character. Do you realize that legally his father could kill him on sight if he comes back? He'd kill him. Not one person would blame him. Not the community, not his family, not even the courts. But he must think, my father is merciful. The late Scottish theologian who passed away last month, Danny McLeod, said this, the prodigal went back to his father, not primarily because he was tormented by a guilty conscience, but because he was driven by the hope of mercy. He knows he's forfeited all rights of sonship and inheritance, but it is better to cast himself on his father's mercy than to remain in a distant land. His attempt to live carelessly and independent of any constraints is a failure, so he goes. The younger son asserts no rights. He recognizes he has no claims. And he knows he is unworthy of any sort of status in his father's house. He accepts the consequences of his choices. He makes no excuses like we do with all our sin. All he has is confession and a humble request. Now, one thing I want you to put in your pocket is that you might not know is that when the son comes back, he'll have to face the humiliation of the whole community. The whole village knows what he did. They're going to ostracize him. They're going to alienate him. They're going to look down on him and maybe even worse. So he risks the wrath of the villagers when he goes, but he's desperate, so he goes. Off he went, heading to his father's house, walking down the road, reciting his little speech, and what he experienced next was something he absolutely did not expect, nor would Jesus' audience. All this time, The son was far off. Unbeknownst to him, his father was doing what? Watching, hoping, waiting for his son to come home. The father's looking, and as the son is far off, he sees him, and he has compassion on him. Any parent can recognize the silhouette of their child from a distance, right? And the father does just that. And he doesn't feel anger. He doesn't feel animosity. He doesn't feel disdain. He doesn't look at his wife and say, can you believe the audacity of this guy? Instead, he feels compassion. The word is literally from the guts. And what's he do? Takes off running down the road. Now understand, older men absolutely positively did not run in this context. Ever. It was undignified to do, children would run, women would run, well-to-do fathers do not run. Plus, you know how foolish men in this context, you've seen an older man run before? This man was wearing a robe. He'd have to pick up his robe and put it by his waist and show his white legs that haven't seen the sun in years, right? He just didn't do stuff like that. You know what this was? It was humiliating. Do you see? Do you guys see? Instead of his son being humiliated in front of the villagers, the father takes on the humiliation himself. And he runs to his son. The son witnesses a visible demonstration of the love of the father who absorbs both the pain of being told by his son that he wished him dead and the loss of the money spent 
and the humiliation that his son deserves. The father takes all of that on himself because it pales in comparison to him being home. So he sprints, and he meets his son along the way, and he grabs him. Literally, it says he fell on his neck. And he squeezes him, and he kisses him repeatedly, and his son starts blurting out his recited speech, but his father won't let him finish. And he probably didn't even hear a word of what he says. He says, bring out the robe, bring out the ring, bring out the shoes, get the fatted calf and kill it. Let's celebrate. For my son was dead. He's alive. He was lost. He's found. They had a party that would put the one the shepherd and the woman through to shame. The father would not even consider any silly offer of being a hired servant. In fact, look at verse 24. He says, for this, my son. Not this, my servant. Not this, my former son. But this, my son has returned. He didn't even consider the possibility of his being a servant for one second. All the thought of the father was, my son is back and I'm going to restore him to sonship. No thought at all of being anything but a son. No, no thought at all of any goofy attempts at repayment or working off what he took from his father in a blown inheritance. The father will absorb the cost and he will do it happily because he thought his son would be dead. But he's alive and he's back in the house for good. The father shows he accepts the son through his actions of running and hugging and kissing, of giving a robe and a ring and the sandals. The relationship has been restored. Reconciliation has happened. Now they can celebrate. See, it's the father who does everything, isn't it? He went out and he risked humiliation. He restored the son. He absorbed the cost of his sin and he orders the ring on his finger and the robe on his shoulders and the shoes on his feet and the killing of the cow. He does it all. And this is a picture of how God receives repentant sinners. What a picture. You know, when a sinner comes to their senses and turns to God, they must know the love of God will receive them. Listen, no one, and I mean no one, is too bad for the grace of God. No one is either beyond the reach of God's grace nor beyond the need for God's grace. No one could be too bad to be saved or else it wouldn't be grace. We can recite speeches, we can think, we can pay God back through our goodness and our morality and our deeds and our comparisons to think people we think are bigger sinners than us. But God is the one who meets us on the road. And he takes on humiliation and he absorbs the cost of our self-justifying. Jesus is saying here that no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what kind of slop you've rolled around in, no matter what you've been addicted to, no matter what you've used to try to save yourself, no matter if you're rich or poor in your self-justifying ways that you must realize you are a helpless estate, he will receive you. Not only that, but he'll treat you as a child of God and give you far more than you can ask or imagine. The younger son did not in any way deserve to be received by the father like this. The miserable lot that he had in the muck and the mire is in his being alone and destitute was because of his devotion 
to sin and his attempt to self-salvation. And even if his father agreed to let him be a hired hand, he would never be able to pay off the inheritance that he blew. He had nothing and he deserved nothing. But see, that's the thing, right? God only receives those who have nothing and deserve nothing. That's it. He delights in receiving sinners with bankrupt accounts. He accepts those who have nothing but need so that he can fill them. He rejoices when someone who is dead is brought back to life through him. He showers kisses on those who are unclean and helpless when they turn to him for rescue. Those who know they couldn't earn salvation from him, even if they had a thousand lifetimes to try, are those who are brought in and given a robe and a ring and some shoes and a party. In other words, they're given everything that's his. I have to share one of my favorite illustrations. If you've been here a while, you've probably heard it before. Um, but I, I, I have to share this. I love it. it. It comes from Timothy Paul Jones. And he was writing about, he's a professor up at Southern, he was writing about his experience with adoption. Okay. He and his wife adopted an eight-year-old girl, and she had previously uh, been adopted by another family, but the family dissolved the adoption, and they gave her back up. Well, <laughs> what that previous, the, the previous family would go sometimes to Disney World uh, as a family, but when this little girl was living with them, they would never bring her with them. They would only take their biological kids and they'd leave her with a babysitter while the rest of them went and had a good time. And they did this multiple times while she was living with them. And the little girl thought, as children will, that this happened because she had done something wrong, right? And it precluded her from going to the trip. Well, Timothy Paul Jones and his wife, they knew that this previous family had done this. And so after they adopted her, they determined, we're going to take her to Disney World, right? Um, when they had a chance, and he had a speaking engagement down there, so uh, they took her. Well, for one reason or another, the girl began to act up leading up to going to Disney World. Like, she just silly things. She'd steal food, she lied, she would say harsh things to her siblings. And as the day on the calendar moved closer to the trip, he says her mutinies multiplied. Well, after one particular incident, a few days before they were set to leave for Disney, he pulled her onto his lap. And before he could say anything, she said, I know what you're going to do. You're not going to take me to Disney World. In response, he asked her, is this trip something we're doing as a family? And she nodded, brown eyes wide and tear-rimmed. He asked, are you part of this family? And she nodded again, and he said, then you're going with us. He said, sure, there may be some consequences to help you remember what's right and wrong, but you're part of a family, we're not going to leave you behind. Well, they finally went... And after the first day at Disney World, they went to the hotel to sleep for the night. And he asked her, how was your first day at Disney World? And this is what he wrote, okay? She closed her eyes and snuggled down into her stuffed unicorn. After a few moments, she opened her eyes ever so slightly. Daddy, she said, I finally got to go to Disney World, but it isn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. It wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. That's the message of God's lavish grace. Jesus came like a father bounding down the road in public humiliation to take on the humiliation of the cross so that wretched, lost, hopeless, helpless sinners can be adopted in the family of God. Not because they're good, 
but because God is a father full of grace and pity who feels compassion from the guts when a sinner comes to their senses through his prompting and he meets them on the way and he receives them as his very own child. Craig Blomberg says, even as the prodigal always had the option of repenting and returning home, so also all sinners, however wicked, may confess their sins and turn to God in contrition. Even as the father went to elaborate lengths to offer reconciliation to the prodigal, so also God offers all people, however undeserving, lavish forgiveness of sins if they're willing to accept it. You know, today, of course, is Father's Day. And for some, it's fun day, right? Of eating and laughing, sharing about their dads. And that's a good thing. And we should celebrate fathers. But for some of us, Father's Day can be painful. Some don't have a relationship with their dads. Some have been alienated or estranged from their dads. Some have lost their dads. For some, the mere thought of Father's Day can bring painful memories and fresh wounds. But I want to tell you, if that fits you, if you have a rough rough relationship or no relationship with your father, take heart because God is a father to the fatherless. He's a father to those who can't reconcile with their fathers. He is a father who embraces those who turn to him, whether it's for the first time or the millionth time. His streams of grace are never ceasing. Maybe you had a great dad, and praise God for that. God is a better father than all the best earthly fathers combined, though. And you still need to go to him. For only in him is found life and forgiveness and restoration. Can I ask you, do you know God as Father? Do you know Christ as Savior? Do you see the emptiness of a life set on itself? Do you see that whatever you are looking to for meaning and purpose and value, that unless it's Jesus, you'll remain empty? And look, it doesn't matter if your pigsty is an actual pigsty. Or if your pigsty cost half a million dollars. It doesn't matter if you pursue pleasure while wearing dirty clothes or a suit. It doesn't matter if you're trying to find fulfillment in the bottom of a beer can or the bottom of an expensive bottle of wine. It doesn't matter if you're trying to find wholeness in your hobbies or in your busyness or your wealth or drugs or sex or if your sins are respectable compared to the sins of those at the bottom of society. Without an embrace from God through Christ, you are a lost child and you will stay lost unless you come to your senses and go to Him. And if you do, He'll meet you on the way. He will bring you all the way home. Can I ask, have you come to your senses? Have you gone to him and said, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm not worthy? Please take me, not because I'm good, but because I want to be yours. No matter who you are, what you've done, whatever you're struggling with, go to him today, and he will meet you on the way.